iced tea. Get to the point. Oh, the riff compels me. Old fashioned, I are calling Bon Jovi every metal, you know. Bloody hell, what's, they were adding everybody in under the category of every metal. Black Sabbath wasn't a band that you got a guy from Newcastle, a guy from London, and a guy from Birmingham who was constructed. We were four local guys that went, I went to the same school as Tony, and we conquered the fucking world. Wait till the end, wait until it's finished, boy, you'll love it. It wasn't my job to try to save this band, it seemed more like it was their job to try to destroy it. Stand up something more too, did you? Ozzy fucking Osborne. Sabbath, please, Sabbath. Hey, it's that old digital bitch of a sabography you love to listen to, Sabbath Bloody Podcast. You're all welcome here, my friends. Today, you're going to get a treat. This fool's going to talk about the relentless, scathing, buzzsaw of a fucking album called Dehumanizer. 1992. Fuck. I thought I was going in prepared for this one, folks, with all the Dio catch-up that I've been doing and all the cats on Twitter telling me that this was going to be the one for me. Well, I listened to it and yes, sir... You figured me out, guys. Absolutely floored by this album's brilliance. But we'll get to that in a minute. First of all, I wanted to thank all you guys for listening to the show and all the feedback you've given, all the recommendations you've dished my way. Well, this podcast here has certainly achieved whatever it was set out to do. I mean, since Born Again, really, it's been especially fascinating and an eye-opening journey for myself. Thanks mostly in part to all the correspondence from you guys. And I really feel like much more of a rounded supernaut myself here. Of course, I still love the classic Aussie stuff best, but I now hold all of the Sabbath works dear to my heart. Stuff that I'd never even given the time of day in my youth. Thanks for vindicating this podcast journey, supernaut. So, Salancha. And thank you for fucking joining me today. We still have a ways to go here, but now I'm definitely going to see this thing through right to the end. I got to, right? So, I just want you guys to write in, join in on the mob, the rules Twitter there at Sabbath Bloody PC. Email the show, SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. But most importantly, leave those reviews on iTunes so more people can join in on the fun. Just spread the word, even to people who will fucking hate me for liking Ozzy more than Tony Martin. I like hearing from all of you. So let's get into this today. After the final tears were shed, <laughs> what was next for Black Sabbath? Well, 1991 was kind of just full of buzz and rumors. Our old friend Geezer was really the tie that binds as far as the ex-original Sab members went. And not only original, but the second coming of Sabbath, the Dio era. His appearances at various live shows were really stirring the pot, as it were, or the cauldron, I guess, of people wanting to see another change in Sabbath's direction, or more like a return to their glory days. Now, I do agree with you, Martin Katz, out there. The masses should have been buying up copies of fucking Tear and getting stoked on that. It's an incredible album, and you could only imagine it getting better if they kept that lineup together and not hit this kind of switchback that they do here. But, I mean, the pressure was on from the masses, and I get it. It always comes back to the original four guys or any combination of them. And a geezer return, for me, is well worth ditching whoever is in his spot. I mean, it could be fucking Lemmy himself in the bass slot, and he'd have to fucking walk. No one tops geezer. In my books, and in, in most people's books, actually. At the time, Geese had wrapped up his tour duty with Ozzy and Co. for the No Rest for the Wicked tour, and he was chipping away at his own kind of solo career, but nothing was really getting off the ground. And then there was that Hammersmith gig that we mentioned, where Geezer joined our boys on stage early in the tier cycle. So Geezer and Naomi were back on good terms in this new decade, and Geezer agreed to join back up and do whatever was next 
under the Black Sabbath banner. And here's a reading for you from Tony Iommi's book as it kind of marks the departure of Neil Murray and the return of Geezer Butler. Puts an official timestamp on everything, too. In December of 1990, after the final dates of the Tier Tour, Geezer came back. He'd enjoyed getting up on stage with us at the Hammersmith Odeon in September. Neil Murray said at the time that he thought it was really good when Geezer played. Neil was the sort of person who would go, you should try it again with Geezer. So we did. Geezer came back, and Neil was never vindictive about it. There you go. Another fucking classy basis, just like Craig Gruber did on Heaven and Hell. The second Geezer returns, all you can do is just fucking bow and not let the door hit you in the ass on the way out, right? And don't worry, Neil will be back too. Fucking phenomenal bassist. I love Murray's playing on tier and all he brought to them live. So this shit all happened in December, heading into 1991. They were just taking the time to shape up what was going to be next. And they'd even arranged a couple of rehearsals with Tony Martin and Cozy. It seems they were ready to rock with that fucking Geezer, Tony Martin, Cozy, Iomi lineup. Well, not quite. As per usual, there were questions about whether or not the cat was the guy to push forward with. And I think the return of Geezer had really incited those thoughts more than anything, as he hadn't really played with Tony Martin at all. So to him, there were others that he'd rather have kind of sing in his words, you know? Geezer had recently reconnected with Ronnie James Dio, and the seed was planted there to try to get that Dio Sabbath reunion happening. This all began in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I was... uh doing a show there with, with my own band, with a band called Dio. And Geezer came to the show, and I told him he couldn't come to the show unless he brought his bass, because he had to play. So he said, okay. So he brought his bass, which got lost on the air, airplane, of course. So he had to borrow another one, but he did play. And f- just from that beginning, I mean, it was, it was wonderful. It was like we'd played together forever, when we hadn't really played in 10 years or 11 years together, and nothing really had changed. Uh, and then, of course, the most important part came. We went back to the dressing room and hoisted a few. And that ended up being, hey, let's get back together again. This is great. And you know the way those things go. And so they did. Dio was contacted, and he was on his way to rejoin the Sabbath. But no one told Tony Martin until the final hour. So, yeah, that's kind of cold, right, to do that. But apparently, separation wasn't so quick. Here's a 2012 interview from Tony Martin that kind of shows the constant state of unknown that he was subjected to by Iommi during the lead-up to the Dehumanizer album. I had already started my first solo album, Back Where I Belong. I was determined to finish my solo thing, so I turned them down at that point. We did keep in touch, though. Ian Gillen asked me once if I had actually been fired, and I said, no. He said, neither have I. We should just turn up one day and walk on the stage. (laughs) I love that part of the quote there. Gillen's hilarious. I love how he and the cat are hanging out, too. Two amazing Sabs alumni there, top tier, both of them, classy dudes. It's funny that he mentions that he turned them down for the solo album that he was working on. That quote is, of course, in hindsight, and he's kind of encapsulating the whole kind of process that goes on during the making of Dehumanizer. But I don't know. There's a lot of hearsay bullshit, too, around this transition. And I don't really feel sorry for Tony Martin in the end, or at least as much as many people do. I mean, he was never going to climb to that really iconic status with Sabbath. Like, for the masses, his flavor is very fucking niche. I know, you like it, right? But it's niche, man. Like, (laughs) compared to Dio and Ozzy, there isn't that that kind of realness that grabs you. He just is a fucking smooth, good singer. To each their own. I mean, if Martin fucking sends you, of course, you're going to be pissed that he's not on this album. But to say he was mistreated by Iommi and Sabbath in general, and his time in Sabbath, that's on him, man. And... (laughs) 
he more than benefited from being in Black Sabbath. I guess what is triggering this in me is these, there's these reports out here that Martin's continued back and forth with the Sabbath camp around these dehumanizer sessions when Dio was in and out. And it, they say that it strained his commitments to the point that the label didn't want to push his solo record that he was working on. And that just sounds like fucking made up Martin fanboy shit to me. I'm just saying, there's no need for the sob stories here on how Iomi treated Martin. Martin himself is, of course, pure class about the whole thing. It was a, a big shock, because um, I was actually walking out the door to go to rehearsals when the first time that happened, um, and nobody told me, so I was like, oh, get out. Couldn't they have just sort of called me up or something, you know, and sort of said something about it, but they're the sort of people they don't talk to you face, and... It's always been that way. They, you have to read between the lines pretty much with Sabbath and you hear from somebody else. All I'm saying is if you listen to this Dehumanizer album and think, oh man, I wish it was Tony Martin singing, not Dio. <laughs> I don't know what to say to you, man. So here's Tony Iommi's take on the whole situation, a blurb from his book that might clear up how this all went down because Martin wasn't the only member affected by this dio decision <laughs> that had been made. <laughs> That's bad. He touches on the Cozy Palisade here too. He says, when I saw Ronnie again, we started talking about doing a lineup. Vinny wasn't playing with him anymore at the time, and Ronnie went, I've got this really good drummer, Simon Wright. And I went, well, we're thinking about using Cozy. That was a bit awkward because Ronnie and Cozy had played in Rainbow together and didn't really get on well. Eventually, we went with Cozy anyway and started writing for what was to become Dehumanizer. It was a difficult time because we already rehearsed with Tony Martin, who now had, who now had to leave the band. It wasn't really fair on him. We made a few great albums with Tony, but everybody was excited about the idea of getting Ronnie back. Certainly the people at the record company and our management were as well. So the Dio Sabbath reunion unofficially commences now at this point, and it's a rocky as shit start. They actually begin with just some jams, some initial writing and demo sessions at Rich Bitch Studios in Birmingham with this incredible lineup here intact, as well as some rehearsals in the States with Ronnie. And... The demos are out there. They proved that this happened. There was a cozy Dio, Iomi, Nichols, and Geezer lineup. <laughs> but, I mean, it's too good to be true, right? Yeah, it was. Cozy and Dio still didn't see eye to eye. And I've heard from many sources that it was more Cozy's dislike of Ronnie that caused the issues. But it does seem to go both ways. And, I mean, drama always follows Dio as far as lineups go. And obviously, Cozy had liked the dynamic of him and Iomi kind of running things, and then the cat just coming in and delivering the vocals for them. He was just as much the face of the band as Tony was, if you think about it, for those two albums, Headless Cross and Tear. Before they could settle in proper here, the friction between Cozy and Dio was hanging over them like a fucking dark cloud. Dio was even holding back on showing kind of his lyric ideas. And here's a clip from Cozy here talking about what unfolded next. We went to the States to do some rehearsals and it didn't particularly gel the first, first couple of months. It, the, the, the chemistry wasn't quite right for whatever reason. Went down to a horse show just near where I live and I had a, a horse promptly fall on top of me, breaking my pelvis, and that was me out of the band. What? Shit. Okay, so there you go. We lost Cozy. A blessing in disguise, as Tony Iommi called it. And Cozy summed it up pretty quickly there. While they were taking a break from the studio, he was out riding horses in the country, and Cozy's horse actually had a heart attack and fell on him, breaking his hip and forcing him out of action for the next few months. Some strange timing given the hard times they were having clicking with Dio, right? Could somebody have maybe had a little fucking voodoo Cozy doll in his castle? <laughs> Who would that have been? Given the timing and the promises made both to IRS and to Dio's labels, 
which was WB still. An album needed to happen now, so they booked into the iconic Rockfield Studios in Wales. So, who would be the natural drummer to bring in to finish off this album? Geezer, Tony, Ronnie, and Vinny Appice. The Mob Rules lineup reunited, and Vinny was down. Even though he had left Dio during the solo run, he was happy to get automatically back to the top of the heap with this lineup again. Although, given all the work that Cozy and the Cat had already put into the record, by the time Vinny arrives in Wales, it was safe to say that all the tracks were kind of ready to rock. He even says that when he arrived, three or four of the songs had already been written, and the rest were done in about two weeks. Everything went smooth again here. They were demoing and rehearsing the tracks at Minot Valley, which is also in Wales, part of the whole Rockfield studio sprawling compound. And then they moved over to the studios proper and cut this glorious album that we'll get into now. Also, once in Rockfield, they brought in a German producer named Reinhold Mack, also known just simply as Mack. And he did a fucking killer job on this record. And with Geezer contributing more than he did on previous Dio-fronted albums, this one moves away from the Rainbows and Dragons, and is firmly based in fucking reality. Oh, well, augmented sci-fi reality, I guess. <laughs> so really more relevant than ever in 2019 if you listen to the themes on this album. It's like a fucking great episode of Black Mirror or something. Ronnie kind of sums up the themes here really well, because it is pretty much a concept album. Some of the lines in the song say it all. Uh, the computer says, man's a mistake, so we'll fix it. And let's hope that uh, we're, we're not around when they want to fix us. But no, I think the song is, it says exactly what it has to say. It's, it's modern, uh, and it speaks of things to come, if, if not things that are, that are already. So let's just do this. I'm excited to talk about this batch of songs. There's a bunch of demos out there, too, which I haven't really listened to that much because I just love the sound of the actual record so much. And they're more or less just kind of instrumental jam versions. There's a couple of unreleased ones in there, which is cool, with Cozy playing drums, of course. But the record itself, man. Let's just push the needle the fuck into this masterpiece, shall we? All right, so it opens up perfectly as far as the cover illustration by Will Reese sets up. The fucking computer god frying some Sabbath fan. <laughs> so the first song is actually called that, Computer God. The theme is laid out on the table. The machines have won. It's not a fucking happy record. <laughs> if you're looking for your 80s motivational speaking Ronnie, it ain't here, honey. This shit is going to be scathing as all hell. A dark, dystopian, kind of critical look at society's interaction with technology and religious factions. With little Ronnie in there spitting venom, as only he can do. The album opens up with this super cool kind of 20 seconds or so of like Nine Inch Nails kind of sex dungeon soundscape. That's how I explain it anyway. I don't know if that was Jeff Nichols who composed it, but it's fucking amazing. Industrial metal had kind of reached its apex by 1992, so maybe they're trying to bring in some of that flavor into the production. This kind of fucking sound art was embedded in all kinds of mainstream metal at this point. Well, by 94, that's when Downward Spiral was out, right? But like, even by this point, Skinny Puppy, Ministry, fucking Nine Inch Nails Broken EP, that would have been out. So this kind of atmospheric stuff was all over albums. And I love it. it. It just takes me back. I grew up on this kind of stuff being kind of part of what metal was. And when Apathy's drums come into here, it's fucking outstanding. I love the gritty, high, bright mix that they have on the drums. What can I say? This album just fucking does it to me on a primal level that no other Sabbath record really has hit. Like, Born Again and Mob Rules come close to tapping into that part of my head. But I'll tell you now, I won't be criticizing anything here today. This album is everything I wanted from a Dio Sabbath reunion. 
and more. It, just, it surprised me. I'm just going to break down the parts and the themes really here in the songs. Not going to give my tops and drops today because it doesn't really apply. <laughs> I even like the sequencing of everything. It's just a great album. So Computer God was a title that was taken from the pages of Geezer's writings. In fact, he had a song called Computer God that he demoed with the Geezer Butler band back in 86. I like the song very much. I think I think Computer God, I mean, it's, it's such a different song from what it used to be called. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as hectic as it is now. It's, it's very forceful now. It's very aggressive. And it wasn't aggressive before. And that, again, was a reason why we needed a lot of time to, to listen to what we had done and then rethink it. Say, oh, no, it's not quite right. Let's change it. So it was changed completely. I mean, totally, lyrically, melodically, from what it was in, in, its, in, in its inception. And the Geezer Butler Band's version of Computer God is nothing like what we get on the opener here. But it's clear that Geezer had a huge part in writing the songs here. The main riff is very fucking cashmere once it gets going, really playing with the space and letting the drums just keep time while Geezer and Iomi rip those little fucking Jimmy Page style triplets. Let's fire off the lyrics here too. Musically, this song is just outstanding. So many changes, yet a relentless drive forward. It's cool as shit. And the lyrics, fucking cool. Waiting for the revolution, nuclear vision, genocide, computerized God, it's the new religion. Program the brain, not the heartbeat. <laughs> Not the heartbeat. I love how Dio delivers those words. <laughs> Onward, all you crystal soldiers. Touch tomorrow and energize. There's this killer fucking bass lick after that. It always has me rewinding the track. <laughs> Digital dreams, and you're the next correction. Man's a mistake, so we'll fix it. So you're getting it, right? It's like a sci-fi dystopian deal, just as Ronnie talked about in that little clip that we played creating a new breed, a computer race ruled by the computer god. If you're not instantly into this track, well, then this album's not for you, and that's cool. But I'd personally take this over the Bible shit and the Viking lore that Martin was serving us. And even this song, as far as a Sabbath song, it hits all the marks. It kind of sinks into this Neon Knights-esque gallop for the end, the outro. It's fucking great. The song has it all, right out of the gate. And it really works with the tempo ramp up at the end to solo over there. So, so yeah, Computer God, great start. And then track two, this might be my fucking favorite from the album. The doom starts to creep in. Fucking huge riff. After all, parentheses, the dead. Why the riff compels me? Yeah, I could drop that for all fucking 10 tracks, but this one sends me the most. After all delivers on so many levels, like so much restraint from Iomi on the verse parts, the way that he hangs on the chords, reminiscent of what he did on Trillin of the Sea and fucking Southern Cross. Just those big ring out notes and that tone just taking over. And then Ronnie on the chorus fucking chills every time he hits that. After all. <laughs> Great melodic tales in there too. Kind of distorted arpeggios, bringing some flavors from the Born Again era, really. Actually, funny thing, Geezer actually plays some of the guitar on After All. Here's a quote from Tony's book confirming that it might have actually been those kind of melodic tales that I mentioned. After All the Dead was an amalgamation of Geezer's stuff and mine. Geezer put one of those riffs in that song, which I thought was really good. He played a bit of guitar on it as well, just a little Philly bit. So is that the little Philly bit, the tail? <laughs> he started playing it to show me and I said, I can't get this, but you know it. Why don't you play it? So he did. So there you go. Other than Brian May, Geezer's the second person ever to play a guitar lick on a Sabbath record, other than our riff lord, Tony Iommi. And after all is fucking great. 
And it can't be understated how powerful fucking Vinny's drums are. Like, as much as I go for Nibby and then Vinny, if I'm ranking the Sabbath drummers, I would not want to hear either Bill or Cozy on this album. Apathy is the fucking dehumanizer drummer. It's a package deal for me, Ronnie and Vinny. And the room tone that he gets on Dehumanizer is fucking unique. Apparently, it was a mostly glass room, so it has this very kind of loud, cutting, in-your-face, bright drum sound. The snare just rips your head off, but in a good way, not in an overbearing way. It just really works. And then, so lyrically, after all, is of course a reflection of the afterlife. What happens to your soul and shit, and what, or I guess what doesn't happen. It's pretty in-your-face. Dio poses it like... What would you want to say to a dead person if they were standing in front of you? Questions that you'd have about the afterlife and all that. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty clear in the lyrics. I don't know why I'm trying to break it down for you, but let's just read them out here. What do you say to the dead? Will you forgive me for living? Can't believe the things that they've said. Wonderful day for a killing. It's killing me. (laughs) What do they do with your soul? Is it just lying there busted? When do you lose all control? Is there someone to be trusted with my mind? So what happens to your soul? Next up is an absolute fucking barn burner too. TV Crimes. And this one was the single too, which is kind of surprising to me. It's pretty fucking raunchy. Killer. And the theme of this one is much more in line with most metal bands at the time. You got to have a song taking the piss out of the preachers on TV, right? I mean, Sabbath has already done it several times, but this one's aimed directly at that televangelist crowd. You know, so like Ozzy's Miracle Man, Metallica's Leper Messiah or Iron Maiden, Holy Smoke, fucking Slayer's done a bunch of, read between the lines off South of Heaven. Yeah, they ain't breaking new ground here, but it's done just as well as those ones. Love Ronnie's fucking little nursery rhyme delivery on the courses, the Holy Father, Holy Ghost, who's the one that pays the most? Rock the cradle, don't you cry, buy another lullaby. Straight fire of this record continues too, on to the next one. Hell, every fucking song on this album is great. Letters from Earth. Such a great riff to open that one. Definite kind of big, heavy guitar tone territory for this one. Love the song, both musically and lyrically. Let's pull up some of the lyrics here. It's a cold world and I'm caught in the middle, caught in the in-between. I don't belong here, so I'm writing you. They never understand, so I'm sending you some letters from Earth. Yeah. (laughs) So to me, letters from Earth almost sounds like a fucking murderer on death row writing to God or some otherworldly being, like a metaphor for prayers, repenting for his sins, kind of, or kind of trying to explain himself. Again, just my thoughts on the song. Like, I thought Nightwing was about a serial killer at first, and it turned out to be about fucking Barn Owl. So maybe this one is just about a fucking astronaut writing to his wife or something. I don't know. But it does get very kind of antisocial and murdery in its fucking lyrics. Like, I don't belong here and I'm writing you with blood on my hands. <laughs> Either way, it's an absolute killer of a song. Letters from Earth, great. And then it's on to another one, one from Geezer's solo projects. And unlike Computer God, it's not just the title on this one that's Geezer material. It was actually an unreleased Geezer Butler track that's actually out, that's out there now on bootlegs, of which the Dehumanizer version here is pretty fucking similar. It's just basically a re-recording, just a little tempo change, the riffs aren't much different on there. Lyrics are a little different on the verses, but the chorus is pretty much verbatim. In fact, Jimmy Bell, the guitarist with Butler's band, claims to have written this song and been refused a credit or even payment. So 
I'm going to dive into this a little bit here for the song because there is an interview that backs up his old story, one that Jimmy Bell did with the website sleazerocks.com. And rocks is spelled with two X's there, so you know this is credible fucking journalism. <laughs> he actually talks about trying out for Ozzy, too, after Jake E. left, and claims that it was down to him and Zach at the end, and then Sharon was all over him being in there, and that's how he was hooked up with Geezer. I don't know how true all this is, but it's interesting blurb either way. Again, it's showing the intertwining of the Ozzy and Sabbath camp there at the time. It's fascinating, though, as I've been trying to find out more about Geezer's in-between projects. Here's a quote here from Jimmy Bell. Sharon Osborne knew Geezer was looking for a guitar, so she sent my video his way. When I got the call from him, I was floored. I always thought he was amazing. First, he flew me to his home in St. Louis, and then next to Birmingham, England. We practiced in this old Air Force base that they turned into a full rehearsal room with sleeping facilities and catering. Geezer was writing heavy, but a bit more commercial-sounding songs for this project. One night he came to me and asked if I could do a track in the vein of Sabbath. That's when I wrote Master of Insanity. I wrote all the music and even the title of the tune. Geezer, of course, wrote all the lyrics. We showcased it, and apparently we were getting a deal with MCA Records. When I got home, I received a call from Gloria Butler saying, the guy who signed us got caught doing something wrong and was let go. Shortly after, when Dio decided to rejoin Sabbath, I got the call from Gloria saying that they were going to use Master of Insanity on the new Dehumanizer CD. I was thrilled until she said that I couldn't be listed as a writer. It was explained that Tony Iommi would never let a song by an outside writer onto a Sabbath record. So I just let it go. However, I was told that I would get paid for the song after the tour was over, and I never received a dime. Another lesson learned. Okay, so that's interesting. And you know, I believe it. Given Iommi's control issues and all the Sharon stuff that we've heard over the years. But all that shite aside, this song, Master of Insanity, has one of the coolest fucking bass riffs ever. Geezer channeling fucking Les Claypool with that funky little run that he does, and Tony matches it note for note. It's just killer stuff. There's also some more atmospherics that creep in here from Jeff on the keys, off the top especially. And I love that you can hear Geezer kind of warming up his bass, much like The Dark from Born Again. Great little interlude to come into this. It's just a badass song. I have to say, I'm liking the way that Jeff Nichols has dialed the fuck back, too. This album is much more raw and organic compared to the Martin stuff and even the Hughes-era things, where the keys kind of swamped over everything. We're back to the kind of cool, born-again, guitars-in-your-face kind of vibe. Jeff's always been kind of pushed back in the mix when Dio's in the band. And for Miami, I can't stress this enough how great his fucking guitar tone is on this record. He hits some wicked arpeggios on the pre-chorus in this song like amazing like fucking volume four throwback stuff just picked out melodic fucking distorted chords but the kind of syncopation of the main riff i can see that not being his riff it's very fucking jakey lee or more new school so the reports that that was all that jimmy cats shit that kind of holds up there too lyrically it's pure geezer kind of fucking sci-fi i've heard it explained as a darker version of heaven and hell and i like that the whole we all cause the fucking good and evil shit in the world and it repeats and repeats and evil lurks everywhere this song is about losing that balance that's how i read it anyway the song is ever changing too feeds into the theme of kind of going insane the songs in this album really work as a whole so much variety within the tracks but more or less you've you're kept in the kind of same vein throughout there's no real sore thumb sticking out no strangers to love (laughs) like that was a big problem too for me on headless cross they would tease like a cool change and then slam into some generic song 
it was also same same in its tempo that I kind of got bored. So anyway, what's after Master in the track list here? Okay, so the next one is Time Machine. A little more straight ahead, this one. Kind of a symptom of the universe throwback, but with Ronnie at the helm. So it's got a little extra. Raunchy as fuck, too. I love the track. Thematically, it seems to be about living in a time machine, right? <laughs> Some Doctor Who geezer shit here. <laughs> no, it's a metaphor for being out of touch, that kind of deal. This one appeared on the soundtrack to Wayne's World, actually. I'm not sure if it was Wayne's World or Wayne's World 2, but... Excellent! <laughs> It's good to get a spot on a fucking 90s metal movie like that. So let's get to the next one here. An incredible deep cut. Never hear this song mentioned, but the next song fucking crushes. Sins of Our Father. I absolutely love the weird sort of Aussie-like voice that Ronnie rocks at the beginning intro. That high, droning, nasally kind of voice. Very 90s grunge too, I guess, to an extent. But the riff that Iomi's playing is fucking cool and kind of matches that, that droney, high it's just great. The rest of the song is good, too. It gets into a more traditional Sabbath kind of riff. I heard people say that they don't like the lead guitar that Tony plays on this song for some reason. There's all kinds of crazy guitar parts in Sins of Your Father, and I like it. Like, Iomi hitting that whammy pedal. That was all the rage with fucking Dimebag and all them coming up. It's very 90s, this song, in a way. No proper solo, just little licks, so I can see why the fucking wankers don't like it. When Iomi finally sinks in, though, <laughs> it's funny because it's right at the end and they just fade him down quickly. <laughs> so for me, it's fucking perfect. <laughs> Wank away, but I'm bringing the fader down, bro. <laughs> so next after this is the song that I said is kind of a filler, Too Late. It's kind of an all too familiar, whiny chorus style solo to open. You know, like that's dated at this point for me. That die young feels good to me intro vibe. It doesn't get me excited like just kicking into a riff does. Maybe it's he likes to play off of Jeff Nichols a little bit because it's always just Iomi over big fucking heavy keys. To me, it sounds kind of lazy, although just like the others that I mentioned, it does go into a nice melodic part relatively quickly, and we get to listen to Dio's kind of sweet ballady pipes, which is much better than it feels good to me in that regard or, or any of the Martin ballads. Like, I get why people say that Martin is just a weaker version of Dio, because Dio does all the stuff that Martin does to another fucking level with more authenticity. That's just what I hear. The rest of the song doesn't really go anywhere. Maybe that's why it's something that I would sacrifice. But I really do like Dio's voice on the track, especially near the end when he's all pissed off, like, welcome, it's too late, too late. He just growls it out. It's fucking awesome. Musically, it doesn't quite get there for me. So yeah, that's one of the weaker ones on the album for me. Maybe you'd love it. But the last two tracks are fucking flawless. Starting with I, 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 Dio at absolute fucking full power. And the sleaziest guitar from Iomi that we've had for years just soaked in fucking flange. I love it. Let's read this one out. I am anger under pressure, lost in cages, a prisoner, the first to escape. I am wicked. I am legion, strength in numbers, a lie, the number is one, I, 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 <laughs> sounds like a fucking pirate song, I, the first verse seems like a dude kind of validating himself or validating his frustrations with the system, man, <laughs> points out that he's in the minority and the majority isn't right, yeah, again, we've heard all this in metal, but when it's delivered by an angry Dio, you fucking pay attention, especially when he says whore, right? <laughs> 
cursing Ronnie? I don't think I'd ever see that. I am virgin. I am whore. Giving nothing. The taker. The maker of war. I'll smash your face in, but with a smile. Altogether, you'll never be stronger than me. <laughs> this song just makes me want to put that black hoodie on, put it up, and just fucking walk in the rain, man. Scowl on my face. I would enjoy this. <laughs> okay, let's make it official, guys. Big moment for the show. Dio is now tied with Ozzy, officially for my favorite Sabbath singer. Yes, they're fucking neck and neck. I'm no longer an Ozzy cat. I'm officially an Ozzy slash Dio cat. <laughs> Never thought I'd say that, but this record, man, this fucking record. <laughs> Actually, I've been an Ozzy Dio cat since Mob Rules, let's be honest. And speaking of Ozzy, in this song, I, at the end, there's like this kind of Aussie kind of part that Dio sings. I don't know if he's taking the piss out of me, but the no, 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 it sounds like fucking 90s Aussie. But it's also just 90s in general, that stoner kind of Alice in Chains style, I guess. But it's a cool little bit. And then there's one more track here, another fucking great one, Buried Alive. Perfect closer to a near perfect album. Song about being oppressed again. There's a lot of religious metaphors in it, so it's right on theme. Once upon a nightmare, once upon a time, you're running from temptation and you got lost and found that you don't belong to anybody. You're all the same, just another number. Cross it out whenever you don't behave. Someone get the doctor, he knows what to do. Throw some bones and mumble, the devil's inside you. Ooh, there's some exorcism shit on there. I didn't pick up on that before. It might be contagious, it might change the plan. Get back to your tiny boxes, even if you can't. We say you can. Join the congregation, everybody's gotta get in line. And we never justify the choir singing and the never ending lie, that's the one that I heard there. Join the congregation, the never ending lie. It's gotta be some criticism on organized religion, right? What a fucking album. And sorry lads, just throwing praise and dropping them to my knees for this one. No piss takes on this album. Just a dark, pissed off, through and through, amazing 90s metal album. Especially in context. Sabbath entering the 90s proper, not reinventing, just grinding out an album. At the same time, amping their natural, God-given talents of to fucking insanity levels. Masterpiece levels. Right there in my top 10, anyway, for what it's worth. I have one last quote here, actually, from Tony's book on the track Buried Alive. I should read this before we get onto the road with the boys. Kind of sums up the album's position in that 90s scene, too. The final track on the album was Buried Alive, a mid-tempo song that had an almost grungy sound. If I say it like that, it sounds like we were influenced by grunge, but of course we were not. The grunge bands obviously have been influenced by us, and I heard a lot of them say that umpteen times as well. Even so, it wasn't a particularly good time for our sort of music. Dehumanizer was very well received and it charted fairly high in the UK and States, but we thought it would do even better than that because we hadn't been together for 10 years. Apart from all that, I was not pleased with everything that had happened while we recorded it. The band wasn't fitting like a glove anymore. It was a bit volatile. We were about to go out on tour, but at all the same time, it felt like the thing could blow up at any minute. And so on that note, Let's get this dehumanizer train out on the road before it explodes. It is a funny story. I think those stories are kind of best in the caravan. They start off things a little differently here. They're kicking off in South America. June 23rd, right through to July, actually. They play a couple of nights in San Paolo, one of which is on the 27th, and it was broadcast on television. Okay, so I got to find that shit. Must be on YouTube somewhere. 
I actually have yet to kind of dive into live shows from this era. Feel free to direct me to some of the best of them as I will definitely be sinking into everything to do with this album in the next month or so. They then swing that up into a North American kind of deal with Danzig as the opener. So fuck yes, that would have been cool. Prong and Love Slash Hate also play a lot of the American dates. Haven't heard of either. Well, I know Prong, but Love Hate, who are they? Now here we go. Holy shit. Okay, only one date in Canada, but it's a fucking doozy. The iconic Massey Hall in Toronto. That would have been an incredible venue to see Dio Sabbath at. Very cool that they played there. With Silk Toxic opening. <laughs> Never heard of some Canadian band, eh? Apparently Danzig and Love Hate can clear customs there. The U.S. swing wraps up on August 9th, so it's only a month, but still better than the last few U.S. attempts, right? Pays that fucking deal in the band. August 15th, it's time to go Euro, starting with the Monsters of Rock Festival in Germany. That year, it was Halloween, Slayer, Testament, The Almighty, Wasp, and of course, Iron Maiden. Full metal that year. There's another Monsters of Rock tour thing here as well. This one's more my speed, too. Testament and Iron Maiden are there again, but you also get Pantera and Megadeth. So, nice. I'd take that over Wasp and Halloween. Especially in 92. So it's all UK and Europe for September. Man, this tour is fucking massive. They do a second circuit of the States too after with Skew Siskin and Exodus opening for them. So they're definitely getting into that thrash scene too. They tour through October. Like I said, it's just a massive tour here. Brings us right into mid-November of 1992. And this is when the drama fucking hits. The glorious technical paradise that they've been building becomes a living hell for the lads. Okay, so disclaimer here. If you're easily offended by hearing unsavory reports about your riff lord, Tony Iommi, please know that I did not make this shit up. It fucking happened. So after the gig in Sacramento, Mr. Tony Iommi was arrested, literally while he was getting onto the tour bus. And it was for a shitbag thing. He allegedly hadn't paid any of his child support for his daughter with his first wife. You remember, the same one that he ditched for Lita Ford, heading into Seventh Star, and all that great character-building bullshit that Tony Boy got into around that time. He starts to pay for it now. (laughs) You can hear my takes on that back in that episode. All I can say is worship the riffs, not the person. And here's Tony himself talking about his time in the clink. Take it as you will, but I find it hilarious, especially for such a deadbeat move to not pay your fucking child support when you're a fucking rock star. I was in Modesto County Jail all night, and I couldn't sleep because of the noise and worry. I probably lost about 10 pounds overnight. I kept thinking, does anybody know I'm in here? I'm very grateful to Gloria Butler because she kept phoning the cops every 15 minutes saying, don't put him in a cell with anybody else. You've got to put him in on his own. Eventually they did. They put me in a cell by myself. The guy next to me was convinced that I had come to kill him. He said, I know you want to kill me, but I'm going to get you in the shower. I know Satan sent you. Fucking <laughs> hell. It was Thursday night and they wanted bail money the next day. Otherwise, I was going to be there over the weekend until Monday. I had to get out and do the gig in Oakland that next night. Well, them's the fucking breaks, Tony. Pay your goddamn child support. Don't be an asshole. I know what you, Iomi, is God crowd are going to say. Save your emails. Zero fucks from me. If you're looking to spout out that it was all his bitch ex-wife and blah, blah, blah. Tony can do no wrong. Whatever, dude. They don't toss you in the fucking slammer like that for no reason. The guy was being a shitbag, an absent father, one with tons of money being spent elsewhere and blown up his fucking nose. I personally do not think this is a cool thing. That's all I'm going to say. He's obviously made amends now, so that's cool. 
but it really shouldn't have gotten to this point if he had to just kind of manned up some. I'll leave it at that. And don't tell me that Sharon orchestrated this whole thing. That's bullshit. The guy didn't pay his child support and he got put in the slammer full stop. Think what you will of that. So after a sleepless night guarding his man pussy there, <laughs> on the 13th, he posted bail and rocked over to Oakland for what turned out to be, technically, Dio's last gig with Sabbath. But not really, and we'll get to that future down the road. But problems surfaced regarding the following night's gig. And there was a little invite here from an old friend. I'll just, I'll just read from Tony's book here again. We'll get his side of the story, and then I'll play a clip from Dio, who sums it up too. Ozzy Osbourne had announced his retirement about two weeks before he was to do his supposed last gigs of his life on the 13th and 14th of November, 1992, at the Pacific Amphitheater in Costa Mensa, California. We were asked to perform there with him. It was Ozzy's first farewell tour, so we, genuine, so we genuinely believed that he was going to retire. So when they asked us to do it, we said, yeah, of course we will be there. We were going to open for Ozzy with the current band and then do three songs with all the original lineup at the end of the show to round it off. We thought it would be a nice gesture to do. So we asked Ronnie, and he said, I'm not doing that in no uncertain terms. I'm not supporting a clown. He was animate that he wouldn't do it, but we were used to him being very direct, so we put it in our tour schedule anyway. We thought, well, he might settle down and change his mind. Of course Ronnie didn't. So that was the nail in the coffin. And fair dues to him, he did say from the outset that he wasn't going to do it. But fuck, man. No more Dio Sabbath just like that? (laughs) If only the cops had kept Tony in the slammer one more night, maybe we would have gotten another great album out of this lineup, right? (laughs) No, we had to wait another decade and a half before we got that. They throw it all away for one shitty fake retirement gig from Ozzy. Ozzy had received some genuinely bad news at the time. And that's why he announced this. He'd been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, so he thought he'd rather hang it up before becoming an over-the-hill kind of hunchback, running around the stage, throwing buckets of water and screaming, I love you all. No one wants to pay to see that, right? (laughs) So I can see Tony and Geezer and even Bill, who returns at this point, wanting to play with Ozzy for one last time at full strength, but why not just do a fucking encore and call it that? Do you have to try to force Ronnie into this awkward position of opening for Ozzy? That's kind of fucking disgraceful, man. Even as huge of an Ozzy fan as I am, that really sucks. I mean, Dio Sabbath were absolutely cooking at this point. A legit relative band again. And if they continued in this vein, who knows what have come after, right? Well, I know one guy who agrees with me that this was the wrong move. The eternal Ronnie James Dio. Uh, well, with Sabbath, the, the, we were offered to be the opening act for Ozzy and his last, what were supposed to be his farewell shows. He was never going to tour again. He was never going to play again. She, what happened? Somebody <laughs> stopped, didn't it? Um, I didn't want any part of that. Um, I had stopped being in my own band in Dio. Uh, they had, uh, Tony had not had Tony Martin anymore, or Cozy Powell. We now had Vinny and myself and Geezer and Tony. And uh, we all gave things up to do what we thought was very important, which was to make another Black Sabbath album with those people. And uh, then when they, they felt that it was more important to make whatever money there was offered for Ozzy um, to be the opening act for him, uh, I totally disagree. We had started ourselves. We, all the tours we had done since we did Dehumanizer were done with us and opening acts, and that's the way it should have been to me. So I refused to do it. They, in turn, went out and incorporated Rob Helford's uh, um, voice to do those last two shows. So it was them and somebody else that came in. That showed me how important they must have cared, you know, thought I was as a person. 
But it didn't matter what they thought. It was wrong to me to do that. I did not want to be part of the circus that was going to happen that night. And that circus was for them to not only be the act that went on before Ozzy, and then after Ozzy, for them to get together again with Bill Ward and Tony and Geezer and, uh, and Ozzy, which is what they did. And then they announced that they were going to have a reunion. Well, that would have meant that it wouldn't be any band with me in it anyway, or, or Vinny, so I guess I did the right thing. And then not too long after that, Ozzy decided, no, I don't want to do this. So let's face it, it all comes down to the fact that someone wanted to break this band up, and they did a very good job of it. That's what, that's what happened, and all a bunch of political mumbo-jumbo, things that shouldn't have happened, but they did. Could have, it could have been avoided if they, if they, like I, had respected my opinion, like I respected theirs. I thought we were a band, but we turned out to be three people who had a vote, and one who didn't, Ozzy, or uh, Vinny didn't, uh, but Geezer and Tony and I did. Well, Geezer and Tony decided that it was going to be two against one always, and that's what happened. So I did all the things that they wanted to do until it came to that, and at that point I said, no, I won't do it, I refuse to. And we never talked about it. No matter what you hear, no matter what they tell you, or no matter what you ever see in the press, it was never once discussed. Ronnie, why don't you want to do this? Never even asked me. Well, so I didn't tell them. I mean, they had to care first before I was going to be involved. It wasn't my job to try to save this band. It seemed more like it was their job to try to destroy it. We never talked about it, and yes, it could have been saved. All they had to do was say, this was more important to us. This band is more important to us, and this band to last for two or three more albums or till the end of our careers, that's more important to us than doing two waste-of-time shows with Ozzy Osbourne so that we can have a reunion and make millions of dollars, which didn't happen at the end of the day anyway. You know, next time, if you get a chance to talk to them, don't let them bullshit you. Don't let them say, no, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Ask them the real questions. Did you really talk about that? Well, the answer is no. And then play them that next time. So I can talk to you guys. You never talked about it, did you? And you blew the best band there ever could have been on the face of the earth, you stupid assholes. Whoa, <laughs> great clip there. Angry Dio, full power. You got to respect that no bullshit. Regardless of the drama that surrounds him, Ronnie is a fucking straight shooter. That interview there was from 1994, too, so it was stewing in him for a while. And that was it. As Dio recapped there for you, the final gig, that Ozzy No More Tours part one finale did go on. At first, they wanted to just bring in old Tony Martin again to fill in. He was always waiting, right? But couldn't wrangle him in time. He said, nah, I'm good working on my terrible solo project over here, doing half-assed covers of Jerusalem. But another Brummy lad was cool to fill in on short notice. The metal god himself, Rob Halford, joined Tony and Geezer and Apathy to crank out the two shows opening for Ozzy as Black Sabbath, which apparently sounds cooler than it was. Halford was forced to use teleprompters to sing the lyrics on such short notice. And like Ronnie said, all that talk about the Ozzy Sabbath reunions, it ultimately didn't happen. And the Sabs was kind of left in shambles at the end of 1992, having lost Dio and forced to regroup with their old alliances. But we'll get into all that next episode. And thanks to you guys for tuning in here too. Let me know your thoughts on this album. Where does it rank as far as mob rules, heaven and hell? Get at me on the Twitter, at SabbathBloodyPC, or email at SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. And fuck, I guess that's it, guys. Until next time, bog blast all you.